my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, August 1st, 2012. Gonna do our light edition today. As we continue working our way through the lectures presented by Dr. Corey Moss on early Christianity, I'll talk about that here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of really bizarre, like, complete opposite of what the Scripture says, teachings being presented out there as if they're biblical teachings. And so this is the program that, well, slows you down, gets you to stop and listen with an open Bible, look at things in context. And the other thing that we do uh, you know, on a, on a regular basis is provide for you good lectures that give you good history, good theology, you know, good teaching, so that uh, you, you, it's, see, it's not just enough to say that teaching's wrong. It, it also requires me to say, hey, stop, let's take a look at this. This is what this is actually what the Bible's saying here. This is what church history really teaches. And so uh, one of my favorite topics here at Fighting for the Faith when we do our weekly light edition are topics that take us back in time to help us understand how we got to be where we are right now. Helps us understand church history in a way that, well, that's scholarly and accurate because you know, one of the things that I think uh, um, a lot of, at least in, in the American context, this is true, is that there a lot of folks in Christianity have no real depth of understanding of the history 
of the church itself, the, the, the heresies that have been fought, the persecution that, that's gone on, how Christianity spread, what, you know, you know, how the confessions or the creeds came about, things like that. And all of that is vital for an, a proper understanding of how we've come to be where we are today. How come Roman Catholicism is what it is? What went wrong? You know, and why did the Reformation start? What was that all about? All of these things are vital and important for us so that we can, you know, how, how do they call it in uh, the, in the military? The situational awareness. We need to have good situational awareness of where we're at, who the major players are, how they came to be influenced the way they are, and why they're teaching what they're teaching and, and stuff like that. So history matters. It, it matters. Now, I understand that, you know, I, I've had a couple of history teachers in my time that were, you know, well, they weren't very exciting. And you know, I, and one of the worst types of history teachers you can get is a history teacher who just makes you, you memorize rote, by rote memory dates and names and stuff like that, but really doesn't tell you the story. And so history is very engaging but it, because it involves people who lived not that long ago, even if they lived 2,000 years ago. If you really think of it in the grand scheme of things, 2,000 years ago wasn't all that long ago. It it really it, it really wasn't, and so you know, all of this is vital. Plus, you know, you talk about biblical history. I mean, that's a whole other topic. But anyway, so this is the reason why I've chosen these uh, lectures by Dr. Corey Moss of uh, Concordia University, Irvine. And today's installment is entitled uh, "Early Christianity from Embattled to Established," and this, the current lecture is Christianity's Early Persecution. Cur- Christianity's Early persecution, and then next week we'll uh, we'll get we'll do a lecture on Christianity's early defense. So I mean, good stuff, good historical information designed to kind of help bolster and build and give a good foundation for you to understand how we've come to be where we are right now. Even though this happened, you know, two or three, you know, well, two thousand years ago, uh, you know, or less, you know, well, only you know, fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. It's still important to know. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Corey Moss and Christianity's early persecution. Well, for those of you who are here last week, you'll you'll recall that the question we attempted to answer, or at least uh, uh, attempted to offer one possible answer to, was uh, what explains or what accounts for the rapid and widespread growth of Christianity in its first few centuries. And there were, of course, a, a number of beneficial conditions that uh, helped that along. Uh, things like uh, the, the sharing of common languages, uh, Latin and Greek primarily. Uh, what uh, historians refer to as uh, the Pax Romana, the, the Peace of Rome, that allowed for things like not only Paul's missionary journeys, but, but uh, continual evangelism. Um, we talked about particular causes, though, and and the one that we spent most of our time on um, was this charity, benevolence, this lovingness that Tertullian pointed to in saying that the pagans look at us and they say, see how those Christians love one another. What causes the growth of Christianity uh, in the first few centuries? Uh, One answer, and, and Granted, a simplified answer is people just looked at Christians and thought, those are good people. Those are loving people. There's something about those people I would like to investigate. 
But of course, we ended by saying, if that's the case, then why in the world did Christianity in its first three centuries um, exist as a persecuted religion, uh, an outlawed, illegal, and therefore regularly persecuted? And so that's the question for today. Um, what accounts for the early persecution of the Christian church? And the very short answer, which we'll flesh out along the way, is simply that uh, it was not at all the case that everyone in the Roman Empire believed that Christians were just good people, charitable, benevolent, loving, selfless. And we don't need to look to those explicitly hostile to Christianity, and so sitting down to write treatises against Christianity, like Celsus, whom we delved into a little bit last time. Let me give you a, a couple of other examples. People who are not um, going out of their way to critique Christianity, but who are nonetheless convinced that Christianity is not necessarily a good thing populated by good people. Um, in the early 2nd century, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius provides an example. In the context of his Lives of the Caesars, uh, biographies of the individual Caesars of Rome. It's not a book about Christianity. Suetonius, in fact, says very, very little about Christianity. But when he does say something about it, here's what he says. Christianity is, quote, a novel and mischievous superstition. Uh, it's novel, it's new, and it's mischievous. Um, this, is, this is a common, uh, a, a common theme. Uh, Pliny is going to say very much the same. We mentioned Pliny last time. We're going to spend quite a bit of bit, uh, quite a bit of time looking at Pliny today. Uh, but another early second century historian of Rome, uh, Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus writes what is called the, the Annals of Imperial Rome. It's, a, it's again, it's a history of the Roman Empire. It's, it's not a book about Christianity. Um, and again, Tacitus, in fact, says very little about Christianity. But what he does say is exactly the same thing that Suetonius says. In Tacitus' words, Christianity is a pernicious superstition. Now, before we, we look at Tacitus in a bit more detail, because he says more, um, just note right off the bat, both of them have this in common. Christianity is a superstition. It's, it's, it's not true. It's, it's, it's silly fables, but it's not just a superstition. You know, it, it, it's not silly things, uh, old wives' tales, harmless it's either a mischievous superstition or, Tacitus, a pernicious. That is, it's dangerous. There's something wicked about it. And Tacitus offers some further commentary along this line. It's a little bit vague, so we'll have to come back and ask what exactly does he mean, but here's what Tacitus says about the Christians. They are a class of people hated for their abominations for their sordid and degrading practices. And contrary to some people emphasizing 
Christianity's apparent love for all people, even the lowest of the low, women, children, slaves, prisoners. Tacitus says Christians are guilty of, quote, a hatred of the human race. Uh, Tacitus does not think that Christians are an especially loving, charitable, benevolent people. But first, let's say something about the context in which both of these early 2nd century Roman historians write. I mentioned that they're not writing about Christianity per se, they're writing about the history of Rome and her emperors. The only reason they mention Christianity is because in their sweep of imperial Rome and her emperors, uh, they have to pause and talk about one emperor in particular, the emperor Nero. And it's in this context of Nero's reign that Christians need a brief mention. Um, if you know anything about Nero, what do you know about Nero? Or, uh, fed Christians to the lions. He fiddled while Rome burned. This is the context. <laughs> this, this is precisely the context in which both uh, Suetonius and, and Tacitus almost are forced to talk about Christians. Because, yes, uh, in the year 64 AD, there is a great fire in Rome. Um, the, the, the 14 existing sections of Rome, uh, when the fire is done, only four of them are standing. Uh, ten sections of the city of Rome uh, utterly destroyed by this fire. And the rumor begins that Nero didn't do anything to put it out. He just fiddled while the city burned. Well, Tacitus, when he, when he records the events of this fire, Tacitus explicitly notes that lots of rumors spring up to explain the origins of this fire. You know, you've, you've all read in your, your textbooks about the great Chicago fire, and, and apparently uh, we're told, at least according to the popular lore, that that starts when a cow kicks something over. Um, all sorts of rumors circulating in 64 AD about what caused this fire, but Tacitus notes one of the most lasting rumors, one of the most difficult rumors to stamp out was that Nero had set the fire himself. So this is where we get the image of, of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. The, the, the rumor is that, that Nero set the fire because he wanted to destroy the city so that he could rebuild it in his own image, so to speak. Um, it's not likely true uh, that, that Nero set the fire, but Tacitus notes, nothing sufficed to allay the suspicion, nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered. So, he continues, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians. Suetonius and Tacitus talk about Christians because they're talking about Rome and her emperors. A fire burns a great deal of Rome during the reign of the emperor Nero. The rumor is Nero started the fire. Nero needs a scapegoat. He fixes on the Christians, which is, which is not a bad move, um, not an illogical move. Um, as, as both Suetonius and Tacitus make clear, uh, a lot of people already dislike the Christians. 
They're, they're, they're easy to scapegoat. Um, but it also so happens that of those four sections of Rome that remain unburned, um, two of them contain particularly high concentrations of Christians and Jews. And so it's easy for Nero to say, that seems a little more than coincidental, that, that virtually the entire city burns down except where the Jews and Christians live. Hmm. And so Tacitus tells us, an immense multitude was convicted. Besides being put to death, they were made objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Now, two things to note about this Neronian persecution. When we spoke last week about some of the causes of Christianity's early growth, aside from Christians being loving, we mentioned that um, sometimes sympathy is aroused for Christianity because sympathy is aroused for Christians who are being persecuted. And Tacitus is, is one of the bits of evidence for this. Tacitus notes that um, when Nero starts covering Christians with tar and setting them on fire just so that he can eat outdoors after the sun goes down, people begin to realize that's, uh, that's what we would call today cruel and unusual punishment. And, and even if we don't like the Christians, if it's, if it's the cruel Nero or these relatively benign Christians uh, who are being tortured, I'm going to side with the Christians. Tacitus says, uh, all of this gave rise to a feeling of pity. Uh, people begin to sympathize with and feel sorry for the Christians. Um, just a, a brief excursus here. Uh, this will especially be the case uh, as persecutions continue, and those who go to their death do so um, in a fashion that is is sort of the, the model martyr's death. You know, when, when, when Christians are arrested and thrown to the lions or crucified or um, tied to a, a pyre and set alight, um, they, they simply stand there with a, with a beatific smile on their face and, and recite their prayers or pronounce forgiveness upon their persecutors. Um, and, and this, too, sticks in people's minds. Uh, we, they, they have to think, um, if, if I was the one being burned alive, well, I'd, I'd be screaming like a baby. Um, what, what gives this person such calm, such confidence? And, um, again, it's... It's intriguing. What, what do these Christians learn that allows them to die this way? But Tacitus again. Now, all of this gave rise to a feeling of pity, precisely because it was felt that these Christians were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. This, this Neronian persecution, um, we can look at as, as almost accidental. 
almost accidental in this sense. Um, it happens only because there happens to be a, a fairly severe fire that burns down Rome. And it just happens that the emperor is the one that rumors are blaming for the fire. And it just happens to be that this particular emperor, Nero, not one of Rome's good emperors, um, is particularly cruel, capricious, per perhaps mad. Which is to say, um, as long as we don't regularly have major cities burning down and uh, public officials being blamed for that, and those public officials in turn being half insane, probably Christians are going to have it okay. You know, persecution should have been the exception rather than the rule. But, but in many respects, it does become the rule, at least eventually. Indeed, already in the second century, um, Tertullian, we, we, we met Tertullian and spent a little time in Tertullian last week. Uh, Tertullian is complaining thusly. If the Tiber rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens give no rain, if there is an earthquake, if there is famine or pestilence, straight away the cry is, throw the Christians to the lions. Now, when we introduced Tertullian last week, he was claiming that Christians had filled the entire Roman Empire and left nothing for the pagans themselves. And so we, we noted Tertullian tends to exaggerate a little bit, and, and I suspect he's doing the same here. But this is at least the impression that he's receiving, and the feeling that he has is that it doesn't matter what goes wrong. If your daughter gets a C on her math test, that's because the Christians are in the empire. Yeah. If you didn't get a pay raise, we need to kill some Christians. Uh, those Christians are the root of all evil. But why? Why would anybody think that? Well, let's go back to Tacitus. Um, Tacitus is quite clear about a couple of things. Uh, he himself does not believe the Christians are responsible for starting the fire in Rome. And yet, he hates the Christians anyway. Um, he, he ends this account of the, the persecution of the Christians uh, saying that uh, there, there's a lot of sympathy for them despite the fact that they're despicable people. Yeah. They probably didn't deserve to be persecuted for the starting of the fire, even though I'm pretty sure they deserve to be killed for something. Well, what, what are these, to, to use Tacitus's language, what are these abominable things, these sordid and degrading things, these pernicious things that he thinks um, are deserving of some sort of punishment? Well, there's some clarification. Uh, Tacitus speaks quite, quite vaguely. They, they do abominable things, uh, degrading things. Well, it's one of the Christian's uh, themselves that, that, that sheds a little light on this. Uh, again, second century, uh, the name this time is Athenagoras or Athenagoras. Here's what Athenagoras says. Three things are alleged against us. 
atheism, Theestian feasts, and Oedipidean intercourse. Uh, this is one early 2nd century Christian's explanation of why Christianity is so hated. What, what do people accuse Christians of doing? Uh, and, I, and I choose this particular quotation almost at random. These three charges are, in fact, the most consistent uh, that are brought against Christians in the first few centuries. So there are three of them. Um, what, what Athenagoras is calling atheism, we'll come back to that. Um, that, that, that strikes us as obviously bizarre. Um, how can you call Christians atheists? Uh, you know, by definition, don't they believe in God, think Jesus is God? How can you call them atheists? We'll come back to that. Um, the second, Oedipidean intercourse. Uh, you can probably guess what this is if, if you remember your Greek tragedies or, or, or even if you remember your Freud. Uh, what, what do we know about Oedipus, uh, Oedipus and so Oedipidean intercourse? Yes, he, he marries his mother unwittingly, doesn't realize it's his mother. Um, so this is uh, a nice polite way of saying uh, Christians are guilty of incest. Uh, they're atheists and they practice incest. Uh, it's a little strange. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, Theestian feasts. Freud isn't going to help us out here. Here you really do need your, your Greek myths. Uh, Theestes. The, Theestes um, gets in a quarrel with his brother, Atreus. Um, Atreus proposes that they, that they um, have a meal together and, and, and make up. Well, let's, let's put our differences beside us. Um, the, the meal is served in several courses, and at the end of the, the, the penultimate course, just before dessert is brought out, uh, Atreus asks Theestes, how, how do you like your, your meal? Oh, man, that was delicious. I have to get the recipe for this. Um, I can't wait to see what dessert is. And dessert is brought out, and the, the lid is brought off the platter, and, and there are the heads of Theestes' two sons. And he's informed that he has just consumed his children uh, in this meal. So, yeah, yeah, Theestian feasts, cannibalism. Now, uh, cannibalism and incest um, do not immediately strike us as the sorts of things done by people otherwise known as loving charitable, benevolent, going out of their way to help people. But you can probably guess why, why rumors like that might begin to circulate. Um, why in the world would anybody think that Christians are cannibals? Uh, yes, if, if you hear people referring to consuming the body of Christ, uh, drinking the blood of Christ. Incest? That seems a bit more of a stretch. Uh, 
It doesn't usually get okay. Doesn't usually get quite that sophisticated. It's usually pointing to just the Christians themselves, and and I wouldn't expect you to get this because you're good Lutherans. <laughs> if 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 you were Baptists and you were used to referring to one another as brother and sister, yeah, um, especially if you're married to each other. Aye, 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 aye. Um, and especially, let's just kind of amp it up a little bit, especially if you're still practicing what is what is vaguely still present in our liturgy, the kiss of peace. Um, add to all of this that, that these things that Christians do in worship... Um, they practice the kiss of peace, which, which is not our modern, you know, the Lord be with you, shake hands, but, but was, in fact, a, a kiss. Um, the kiss of peace is being practiced. Uh, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper is being practiced. And all of this is being done in private, uh, in secret, uh, because Christianity is technically illegal. So people don't know what's going on in Christian worship services. They hear rumors. They, they, they hear things about, um, about both sexes getting together while it's still dark, kissing each other, drinking blood, eating bodies, and, and, and you can imagine that, that doesn't sound like the, the sort of thing that you want to support. Okay, we're going to pause the lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or your previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. 
I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, that's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. You'll laugh. You'll scream. And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Budgie Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. We're back. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is engaging in narcissistic eisegesis and teaching you to read yourself into all the biblical passages. We just blow that away. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, as we continue this lecture about uh, the, the early persecution of the Christian church, let me just ask you a quick question. Do you think the 
Christians would have been persecuted if they were going around at the time of the Roman Empire, you know, in early Christianity, you know, first, second century, and third century, if they were telling everybody, well, pretty much the message that you're hearing from guys like Rick Warren, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Craig Rochelle, and others, you know, read yourself into the text and go and become a conqueror and how you, you need to find your purpose and your destiny. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Christian persecution would have been non-existent if that was the message being preached <clears throat> at the time. Anyway, so let's get back to our lecture. Here is uh, Dr. Corey Moss. We continue. Well, in this light, um, some of some correspondence that we mentioned last time uh, becomes very enlightening. Um, and the correspondence is that between uh, the governor of Bithynia, a uh, region just sort of north and, and then a little bit to the side of Jerusalem around the coast, um, and the emperor of Rome at the time, Trajan. A uh, bit of correspondence uh, exchanged in the year 111 AD. Pliny, the governor, writes to the emperor. And one of the things that, that he reveals is that I know what Christians are doing in those secret worship services. And it ain't incest, and it ain't cannibalism. Uh, you, can, you can almost hear the disappointment in Pliny's, uh, in Pliny's letter when he explains this. Well, what are they doing? Um, here's what Pliny writes. It's, it's a relatively long quotation, but perhaps worth reading in full. They asserted that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to God. Yep. Perhaps worth pausing there just a moment for any of you who are great fans of, of the Da Vinci Code and the, the theory that uh, Christians only started thinking of Jesus as God at the time of the Nicene Council in 325. Um, here, here you've got a, a pagan governor, a person who is persecuting Christians, um, already telling us, no, in 111 AD, they're singing songs to Jesus and they're calling him God. Um, what else do they do? Uh, and they bind themselves by oath. They swear oaths, not to commit some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. So they're getting together, they're, they're singing some songs, Sounds a little odd what they're saying in those songs to me, but they're singing. Um, and then they're taking oaths. They're swearing that they will not do bad things. They're not going to commit adultery. Uh, they're not going to steal. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. But ordinary and innocent food. You know, they're, they're, they're not eating babies, even in part two of the worship service. <laughs> well, there is nothing, it seems, even according to Pliny, that these Christians are doing that is worthy 
of state-sponsored persecution. And so he writes to the emperor to ask, quote, whether the name itself, even without the offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name, ought to be punished. That is to say, uh, we know there are Christians, and we've heard some rumors about the things Christians do, cannibalism, incest. I'm punishing Christians. I just want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reason. Do I have to punish them because the Christians are doing those things we, we think Christians do, cannibalism and incest? Or even now that I know they're not doing that, can I punish them just because they're Christians? Is the name enough, the, the, the title enough to persecute? Or do I actually have to convict them of, of doing something wicked? And he explains what his procedure has been to this point. He says, um, I first of all simply ask them, are you a Christian? If they say no, I let them go. If they say yes, I explain to them that, that Christianity is a, a punishable crime, punishable by death. You understand that, don't you? So let me ask you again, are you sure you're a Christian? And if they say no the second time, then I, I let them go. If they say yes, well, then I re-explain Christianity is illegal. It's a punishable crime, punishable by death. Are you quite sure you're a Christian? And if they say no this third time, I let them go, and we're done with. If they say yes the third time, well, then I have them killed. Because, he says, whether they've committed a crime or not, quote, their pertinacity and inflexible obstinacy should certainly be punished. And Trajan concurs. Uh, the Emperor Trajan responds to this letter and says, you're going about it precisely the right way. This is a... Um, this is a hint of, of things to come and things as they are at this point. Um, there, there may be nothing punishable in being a Christian per se. The Christian's real fault is not knocking it off when the state tells him to. Um, and this is going to be an, an omen of things to come. Uh, Christianity is, is ultimately cast... Um, as inherently disobedient to the state and therefore dangerous to the state. But, but one last thing before we leave this correspondence between Pliny and Trajan. Um, Pliny explains that one of the reasons that he's writing, just to, to check with the emperor to make sure that he's going about this the right way, is because there are an enormous number of people coming into his courtroom being accused of Christians, uh, being accused as Christians. <clears throat> but they're not in his courtroom because he's been out looking for them. Um, these people are simply being accused by their neighbors. 
You know, it's uh, you know, your next door neighbor gets on the phone and, and calls now nine one one and says, uh, "I understand we've got a law on the books that says Christianity is illegal, and my next door neighbors are Christians. Can you can you come by and round them up?" Um, but but Trajan and and Pliny are not themselves out looking for Christians. Um, so Pliny asks, "Am I doing the right thing in this respect?" And again, Trajan says, "Yes, absolutely." The, the crime of Christianity, the emperor says, is not worth seeking out. Don't, don't go out of your way trying to find Christians to try, to imprison, uh, to execute. But if they are accused by credible witnesses, no, no anonymous accusations, but, but if a credible witness accuses someone of being a Christian, then by all means, they, they must be punished. And, and the reason that I want to emphasize that is because we often uh, we often assume that that from day one until you know three thirteen or thereabouts when Christianity is legalized that it's just nonstop persecution of Christians uh, wherever you live within the Roman Empire the Romans are out to get you um, and that's not really the case through uh, the first the second and into the third century. Um, persecutions, when they occur, tend to remain local, uh, as under Nero, in Rome, um, and, and sporadic. Uh, the, the state, beginning with the emperor himself, um, is not seeking out Christians, attempting to destroy the entire religion. Uh, but Christians are persecuted occasionally, sporadically, and locally. But that does begin to change in the third century, um, where it, it comes to be, to be uh, a bit more empire-wide, uh, a bit more top-down. And this coincides with uh, an increasing emphasis on what we sometimes refer to as uh, the cult of the emperor, or what we sometimes refer to even as, as emperor worship. Now, it's, it's not been uncommon throughout the history of the Roman Empire uh, to, to proclaim certain emperors deified at or after their death. Ooh, this was a great emperor. Uh, he's, he's now deceased. Um, we're going to proclaim him deified and just add him to the list of gods that we recognize. Um, but increasingly, especially in the third century, this, this claim of deification is being applied to emperors while they're still alive and, and while they're still ruling. And as such, uh, there is an increasing imposition on Roman subjects of mandatory sacrifices you know, an, an act of worship before statues of the emperor. And again, this is, this is, this is not in and of itself novel. Um, in the, the early second century, one of the earliest of these accounts of Christian martyrdom is uh, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, and, and there it's made clear that the easiest way to, to tell whether someone is really a Christian is to uh, ask them to say 
Lord Caesar. If they're Christian, they can't do that. Or another way to find out if they're really Christians, ask them to offer a sacrifice in front of a statue of Caesar. Uh, if they're really Christians, they can't do that. But at the time, it was typically a test given to particular people. Especially in the second half of the third, third century, all Roman subjects are expected to make a sacrifice before the statue of the emperor. And upon doing so, receive a certificate, a little receipt, a proof of sacrifice that you would then be required to present if ever asked. If you don't have one of those certificates, and if you're unwilling to get one, that's probably sure evidence that you're one of those Christians. Now, let me pause here and, and, and go back to what I, what I called this. Uh, emperor worship, it, it's sometimes called that, but that's not really what it is. It's not so much a worship of, of the person of the emperor as it is a worship of the state, of the empire. And the emperor merely embodies the empire itself. And, and the distinction is important. <clears throat> um, good emperors, bad emperors come and go. And, and, and if this were in a strict sense emperor worship, um, we, could, we could perhaps write this off as, as due to the, the megalomania of certain emperors. You know, huh, I think I'm God, and, and I want everyone else to think I'm God. But pretty soon we'll get a good emperor who, who doesn't think that. Um, it, it's not about the emperors so much as it is about the empire. And it's very difficult to, to overstate how in the Roman mind the empire, the state, is the absolute highest good. Um, it's, it's, it's higher than uh, your family. Um, it's higher than any particular emperor. Um, the state is the highest good that there is. So this, this quote-unquote emperor worship is, is probably better conceived as empire worship. It's a concern for the glory of, the strength of, the stability of Rome itself. But of course there is no separation between church and state, as we might say, in ancient Rome. Uh, the, the, the cults of Rome, the, the worship of Rome, the gods of Rome are there for the good of the state of Rome. Rome has risen to greatness, first in the form of a republic, then in the form of an empire, because the gods of Rome have looked favorably upon it. And God has smiled on Rome, or the gods have smiled on Rome, because the Romans have been faithful to those gods. But here's where that, that train of thinking leads. To the extent that Roman citizens and Roman subjects become unfaithful to the gods of Rome, 
those gods will no longer smile on the empire of Rome. We will begin to see uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And, and Pliny, already at the beginning of the second century, is, is giving us hints of this. When he writes to the emperor, a lot of Christians coming before my courts, they're being persecuted by me, executed by me, but they're not doing anything wrong. But here's another concern. Quote, uh, the temples, the pagan temples in Bithynia, had almost been deserted. The established religious rites, long neglected. For sacrificial anim animals, very few purchasers could be found. This is the, the basis for uh, the first of those three charges that, that Athenagoras says are being made against Christians atheism. Now, it's, it's, it seems obvious to us Christians weren't going to be involved with incest. They weren't going to be practicing cannibalism. And it seems equally obvious to us they weren't and they aren't atheists. That's, a, that, that's an oxymoron to, to, to be a religious atheist or a Christian atheist. But here's the point. It's not that the Christians were not worshiping any god. It's simply that they were not worshiping our gods, the gods of Rome. And so the old religion is increasingly believed to be in, in danger of dying out, uh, dying of neglect. And since in the Roman mind, as religion goes, so goes the state, so goes the empire, they logically conclude that Christianity is a direct threat to the health of the empire. It's a mischievous, pernicious superstition. But the superstition isn't what concerns us. There are lots of superstitions not worth stamping out. Um, to the extent that it's mischievous or pernicious because it's, it's bound up with ideas of, of incest or cannibalism, we can set that to, to rest now because we know you're not doing that. But the charge that is going to continue to stick uh, and the charge that is most significant is the charge of atheism because it's not just a religious charge, it's a political charge. To the extent that Christianity grows popular, the health of the Roman Empire will decrease. In that light, uh, the topic we'll take, take up next time is how does the church formulate a defense of itself, um, either of its beliefs or simply of its rights to exist in light of the kinds of charges being made against it and the kind of persecution carried out against it. I'll stop there for today and, and take questions. We've got a little more time today. Yes, sir. I wondered, uh, maybe you're going to be speaking about this in the future, but during this time, the Christians were subjected to heresies creeping in, and I wondered if you could speak about that. Yes, um, we, we will speak about this um, at some length in two weeks. Um, 
Uh, the question is uh, whether we'll speak about, about heresies creeping into Christianity. Um, and we certainly will. Uh, what we'll do next week, uh, when we look at the, the, the defenses of Christianity, one of the things that we'll see happening is that the, the church, um, in some respects for the first time, is being forced to, to, to do theology to explain what exactly Christianity is about, what do Christians believe, why do we believe it. Um, but the following week, when we look at some specific heresies, uh, we'll see the same thing, that the church is being you know, almost forced to do theology, not because it's being persecuted, but because its teachings are being uh, distorted or questioned. So yes, um, in two weeks especially, we'll, we'll spend a good deal of time on this. Out of curiosity, was there any persecution from the Jews at that time against uh, the yes, Christians? Good question. Good question. Um, well, when I said that the persecution by the state is is local and sporadic uh, for the first two and into the third century, um, even more so the case uh, in the case of of any persecution by by the Jews, um, and that's especially going to be limited, I th I think. Um, especially to the first century, um, and it, it's it's decreasingly happening uh, elsewhere and after that. Well, thank you very much. Great lecture. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.